Thus spoke Saint Alia of the Knife. The Reverend Mother must combine the seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable majesty of a virgin goddess. Holding these attributes in tension so long as the powers of her youth endure. For when youth and beauty have gone, she will find that the place between, once occupied by tension, has become a wellspring of cunning and resourcefulness. From Moadib Family Commentaries by the Princess Irola. Welcome to Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name is Derek. And my name is Mike. With each chapter, we're going to be opening up a new bottle of wine and having a bit of a buzzed book club here. Now, Mike, we've come to the realization that wine is a cornerstone of this podcast. <laughs> yes. And we have yet to let anyone know what we're drinking. Well, we, we can change that today. I, th- I think today's the day. I think, what did think- you pick up for this episode? All right. This is Sebastiani. It is a Cabernet Sauvignon 2016, and let me, let me read you a bit of these notes here. We got uh, rich and complex with vibrant aromas of blackberry and spices. Oh! Oh, some oh, spice! Oh, we, we got some spice! Worked it in. Along with flavors of red fruit and vanilla. Uh, wonderful for any occasion. Well, so far it tastes delicious. Yeah. I look forward to finishing it. <laughs> well, we won't have much trouble with that with our track record. Now, uh, this week... We are back for chapter three. We had just spent some time with the Harkonnens and met our adversaries for it. But we're coming in with chapter three uh, for Gaius Helen to really wrap up her business on Caladan. Right. And we're, we're, we're sort of starting off in Lady Jessica's morning room in the castle. It's same day and everything, right? Yeah, it's going to be, I think, just right around sunset. Okay. Uh, so... In the future chapters, they will reveal that some conversations happen in between chapter one and chapter three that we're not going to be in the loop on just yet. Are we going to get a little flashback to that? Yeah, we will. Okay. Uh, Paul will kind of have these remembrances of Gaius, Helen, Mahayam telling him various things. Uh, and, you know, we'll bring them up. None of them are good news. Oh, oh. <laughs> as, as based on the context of what we learned in this chapter. <laughs> She's she's just here to tell us bad things, it seems. Well, it's great to meet her at the very least. Indeed, indeed. Now, this chapter, like all of them, does start with a quote. And this oh. one was a little different than the last ones okay. that we had seen. Um, starts off with, thus spoke St. Aaliyah of the Knife. Now, did you have any guesses for who that was? There hasn't been any clue up to it. You haven't missed anything. No, but it sounds like some sort of assassin. You think an assassin? Well, if your your title is the knife, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's gonna have some more cultural overtones. Really, so it's not necessarily assassin. Yeah, uh, that it's just a way of life. Uh, but then the saint thing gives you a little religious overtone to her as well. Right. Uh, the other bit that I was wondering if you put together is that the book it's from has changed from the last books. Oh, it, it was the Manual of Muad'Dib before, right? Yeah, I think the last two chapters have both been the Manual of Muad'Dib. This is commentary on... This is uh, from fam- Muad'Dib, Family Commentaries, by the Princess Irulan. Interesting. 
How many books are there on Muad'Dib? And then how many were written by Princess Irulan? Ooh, certainly the majority are by Princess Irulan, <laughs> okay. I think. She's uh, in deep then. At least in the cur- the beginning histories when some people are re- first biographers. She she tackles the subject very thoroughly. All right. Uh, I don't know how many there are. There are at least a dozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that one, I just feel like gives a little weird clues on things. Uh, within that quote, at the end of it, it has uh, it all talks about a reverend mother and how they age. Right. Uh, that they're this untouchable virgin goddess living in between her youth and her beauty. Uh, but that at one point she's going to be beyond that. And then she finds in that place a wellspring of cunning and resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just it obviously refers to guys Helen Mahayam going into this chapter. She's our only reverend. Mother. She's the only one we know so far. Yeah, meets all these clues, and based on how she acts within this chapter, I feel like we're just witnessing that wellspring. How many reverend mothers are there? There are a lot. I don't have a number for it. Um, I don't know how big the organization is. Hmm. Suffice to say that they, you know, they have plans that are on a universal scale and they are interacting with at least all of the great houses, if not the majority of all houses. Right, because that's where the most of the the genetic uh, lines are that they want to preserve. Yeah, these sort of like breeding lines that they've brought about. Uh, So I think they're distributed very thoroughly on a lot of administrative levels they fill. There are a lot of sisters in other roles other than Reverend Mother. Right. So that's also maybe the point to make. Reverend Mother is the minority role. There is a whole just uh, cadre of Bene Gesserit sisters out there doing the work of the sisterhood who will never become Reverend Mothers. They'll spend their whole careers just as a sister. Hmm. I'm actually really curious to learn more about them as we go throughout this book. They're just, they're, I don't know. I just haven't, uh, in all the books and films that I've participated in, I've never really seen quite uh, an organization or religious organization sort of like them. Yeah, that's very heavy on the political angle. Yeah. Uh, and very open about it, they seem to be. Yeah, at least I with, think with one another. Paul's that's my kind favorite of part. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're pulling levers and we know that we're doing it. What was uh, what was the drug we talked about last time? The truth drug, Samut? Uh, Verite was Verite. the truth drug. Samuta was the ecstasy like. Oh, right. <laughs> Never mind. I was going to say, like, <laughs> what if we just give Samut <laughs> to all the major religious organizations and see how things go? You got to probably... take the right drug. <laughs> yeah. It's a okay, whole maybe, different religion. Maybe not that then. <laughs> uh, so uh, I just thought that quote was very intriguing uh, and sets us up for this dialogue we go through and a lot of these witticisms that Guy is Helen is going to throw out at us. Mm-hmm. So as we were saying, it does start at the sunset of Paul's test. Uh, we're in that same room we've been in. Paul's been in this adjoining meditation chamber, uh, kind of a I assume processing the events of the day. And a lot happened, yeah. Right. Uh, he's had a lot to uh, think about over these past few hours. Just being a human now, uh, confirmed the Bene Gesserit position. He had some well-formed thoughts of guys, Helen Mahayam, too, throughout the <laughs> ordeal. And when this chapter opens, uh, Mahayam is chastising Jessica for what she's done. Yeah. Just trying to get at her. But Jessica is not really present. She's kind of off in her head. Spacing out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and she's remembering the ordeal from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, all back when she was a little girl. And then sort of like uh, putting herself in Paul's shoes in a bit. And just, I mean, uh, being a mother. 
Yeah, I liked uh, when she kind of comes back too. The first words out of her mouth are "Poor Paul." Yeah, and the first words in this chapter uh, as what she's really concerned with. But when she is thinking back to it, uh, I like that the Gaius Helmahiam is the Proctor Superior who administered her test as well. Right. So we we learn we knew that she was a Proctor, right? We knew, uh, I think all we got was Reverend Mother. I don't know if they even mentioned think, Proctor Superior I, last time. Well, I don't know if, about Superior. I, I think it was Proctor in Chapter Proc- 1. Proctor, the Bene Gesserit, right, looking but, for the Quisach Hadarach. So Proctor Superior, does that mean she's like leading the Proctors or the head honcho? Yeah, there's, uh, there's four ranks when you become Reverend Mother. So okay. I said Reverend Mother was kind of a blanket term. Right. Uh, Reverend Mother is the lowest of them, so it's just a general. Then you can move up to a Proctor, so a Reverend Mother Proctor. Then you can become a Reverend Mother Proctor General, and then Reverend Mother Proctor Superior. Proctor General. Proctor General. Uh, Very cool. And then the plural of those is going to be like uh, Attorney General and Attorneys General. It becomes uh, Proctor's Superior or Proctor's uh, General. Okay. And they do the major administration of the Bene Gesserit chapter houses. Gotcha. That they have spread throughout the universe. And Gaius Helen Mahayam is the head of the one on Wallach 9. And as far as the series goes, that's really the, the main headquarters of the whole group. Okay. Uh, so their governing bodies are all settled there. Um, there's training grounds there. Their archives and their library are located there. All the major decisions. Uh, so the archive with all the breeding lines is all going to be on Wallach 9. Capital city. Yep. So that's where she comes from. Um, bringing us back into this room, uh, guys, Helen Mahayam is chastising Jessica and asking her, um, was it, is it just, is she proud of what she did? Yeah. Like, look what you've done. Are you proud? Yeah. Are you happy with yourself? So she's scolding her for having a boy instead of girls. Right. For not making that decision. Right. Cause that sort of screws up their whole genetic, uh, line. It seems as well as another thing where the guys Helamahaya mentions that they were going to seal the breach between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. Yeah, so wait, what? This plan encompasses so many things where I feel like this was a secondary objective they just knew they could pull off, where let alone we can advance our breeding line, get close to the Quisach Hadarach, we can put peace in the universe a little bit and solve a major point of uh, conflagration uh, among the great houses prevent bloodshed and just economic loss throughout is a very pragmatic uh, decision. And I, it's funny that this one little bit of love is what throws that off with Jessica deciding for the Duke's sake to give him a son. Right. Is all these cascading events are because of that. This just makes me think of uh, Baron Vladimir and the plans within plans within plans. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Baron. Oh, yeah. uh, Cause this illusion of sealing the breach kind of lets us know one other thing about fade Ralpha. Oh, from the last chapter. Oh, he's the one, right? He, he is also in this line. So if, Paul had been born a girl instead. Or if Paul chose to be a girl, because it's the future, he can do that. Oh, oh, really? I think you could be gender fluid. Oh, very cool. They could have, you know, Frank Herbert wasn't just, oh, he just didn't see the possibilities. I thought you meant like biologically, like just like, uh, just like how the Benny Gesserit can like like, choose. I was like, you know what? Yeah. Snap my fingers, which would be dope. A little bit of, uh, I can tell you, Benny Gesserit power. Gaius Helen as a full on Reverend Mother, Mm -hmm. she has the power to procreate on her own. What? Yeah, they they choose not to. Uh, they also are able to stop their aging if they wanted to. 
uh, but by their the kind of doctrines within their order, they won't do either of those things because it would make them an enemy to the rest of civilization if they multiplied their own numbers to such an extent or oh acted my gosh. so independently. They're like not even human. Like they're, No, no, they are the epitome of human. Wow. They have just full control over all their body functions. That is so wild. So when they, uh, one of the last oaths they kind of take is that an oath to not be an immortal. Like, oh. I choose mortality. Wow. Because it's important to live. Oh, man. Do you think there are any rogue... Uh but Benny Gesserit or like reverent mothers out there, they were just like, oh, I'm going to live forever. No, uh, just because the amount of trials and tribulations you go to to achieve that power, mm-hmm. I, I think there's kind of a balancing aspect to it. Okay. Uh, and that they would understand the number of downsides that might eventually come with that long of a life. All right. Knowing that it eventually becomes a curse. All right, fair. I'm just curious if there's anything in the encyclopedia about like this one Bene Gesserit that lived no, for yeah, five thousand so years. No, I don't got one lore, but just with the number of them. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, so we know that uh, uh, Fade Routha, he would have been married to yeah the Atreides if Jessica gotcha. had a daughter. They would have uh, been Paula. Married. We'll call her. Yeah, Paula, beautiful Paula. <laughs> uh, they would have uh, been wed and hopefully brought in peace between these two families. Ended this long feud. And in the long run, installed their child onto the throne. Hmm. Oh, wait, as the emperor? As the emperor. What? Because the Bene Gesserit are holding one over on Shaddam the Fourth, which we touched on last oh, time. Oh, so they would have had the boy and then be they like, would... hey, remember that IOU? Well, at, yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't know if Shaddam, he, yeah, he still probably would be in power. Uh, we get his... Um, he is like 80-something, but he only looks about 35. Uh, because of the spice. Yeah, because of the spice melange. So, yeah, he probably would still be alive by the time that person came to adulthood. Okay. Uh, and would be a formidable person to take on that seat of power. Wow. Yeah, that, that is our potential alternate wow, universe. that's wild to think about. Plan. I didn't. I mean, I didn't even think that far ahead. Worry um, not, though, because Jessica... No regrets. <laughs> yeah, she she says that, right? Yeah. I, I made a vow never to regret. And uh, I think Gaius Helmheim's just like, oh, how noble. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to say afterthought, right? Yeah, no regrets. Uh, there was just the kind of remark you make where if you were closer, I would hit you. But I guess I'll just say this. <laughs> um, well, she says something, though, that uh, is, I think, uh, very in tune with, like, knowing the future and what's going to happen. Because what she says is... Uh, you know, we'll see when you're a fugitive with a price on your head and every man's hand turned against you to seek your life and the life of your son. That's sort of the plan that we just heard about in the previous chapter. Right, the Baron's yeah. uh, plan. And guys, Mayim does have a bit of prescience. She can see a little bit of the future. Right. So she has an idea of how things are going to unfold. Oh, man. And that's one of the you know, many reasons she's made this journey is mm-hmm. to kind of warn Jessica, too. Uh, and save whatever the Bene Gesserit can of their plan. Right, because their plan has basically just been smacked it, off the table because it's, Lady it's Jessica... It's going to get steamrolled. Well, uh, let alone Lady Jessica, it's going to get steamrolled by the Baron now. Oh. Uh, so, like, the pieces they've picked up in the 15 years since Jessica did her action is now another wave is about to wash over it uh, and change everything. <laughs> I imagine the Bene Gesserit are playing, like, a solitaire game, and all of a sudden you catch... Lady Jessica jumps <laughs> on the table and <laughs> throws them all over the place. Like, what are you doing? All this yarn I put in such careful place. <laughs> Very much. Um, so that's interesting that she's on it. And Jessica kind of wits back that you're not infallible. 
mm. uh, kind of, I think, hopefully get um, or wanting the guy as Helen Mahayim to agree with her. Maybe yeah, she, and I mean, give she, her that like chance of she's not saying sorry. She's defending herself. Mm hmm. Yeah, she's very adamant about yeah. like uh, especially I mean it's her son. She we're she'll never get separated from Paul. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest change that's happening in the world uh, that Gaius alludes to is that Comb is already uh dividing up these spoils or Jessica asks about it. Mm-hmm. And Gaius Helm responds that Comb is but the weather vane of our times. So you've been calling it Comb, I've been calling it Chome. Should we like Chome. settle on one? No, I mean, it's the only company that's going to sound like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I mean, it's, how many companies are there, really? Yeah. The Chome, Comb Corporation. I, th- I guess Chome would really lean into the CH. All right. I mean, like, we'll, yeah. Regardless, I bet in 20 minutes we'll forget we even had this kind of talk. <laughs> we'll move on to something else. <laughs> what was that, Piter? Give two names. <laughs> Piter Peter? Uh, within the Chome Company, uh, the Emperor... We find out him and his friends are commanding fifty nine point six five percent of it, and that's that's voting power, or is that like stock? Like the, how? Do, yeah, yeah. You want to know how it, how that what is that breaking yeah, I down? Mean, like just something I can relate to, I guess. Right, because we've heard a few different things. Uh, we've heard directorships, we've heard about shares, and now this point. Uh, so here we're talking about directorships votes. Okay. So and they is, vote on where money goes to. Yeah, they can allot money to um, either what would it be sort of like propping up a market, subsidizing something, or establishing new markets, uh, maybe building new spaceships to go about these markets, right. or investing within that planet's infrastructure, it's things like that, where eventually the trading that would be generated from what you're investing in is going to clearly cover those costs over time. And so the emperor... And his pals own the majority of that. Yeah, they're at the point. I mean, they're almost at a non-veto-proof kind of right. push through anything you want. And that's dangerous. Right. It sort of uh, eliminates the need for uh, the directorships, even. Mm-hmm. And when Chom was established, the emperor had 20% uh, is personally his shares. It is currently, the encyclopedia lets me know, uh, towards the end of uh, Shaddam's reign, he has 38% personally. Oh, so he's been collecting a bit, and he's been you know shaking hands, kissing babies, trying to exactly. get friends yeah. for the rest of it. Yep, making a coalition of these greater houses that are just dependent oh, on the resources he's moving or the decisions he's making. But the houses are still staying within the, the coalition of the Landsrad, just in case the emperor does say, like, to war! Yeah, exactly. Okay. The, so there's a delicate balance there. Yeah, Chome is sort of like the glue in between these three organizations. Okay, so that, I mean, that's interesting. So Chome really does sort of keep things going or keep it from uh, going into all out war. Yeah. And uh, once we get through the chapter summary, I got a little bit of the background of the founding of uh, Chome. Oh, kind of how it shaped uh, the world to get to the great houses where they are today. Yeah, I'd love to learn about that. Yeah, we'll go right into that. Uh, she she describes it as a, a three point civilization. Uh, Guys, Helen Mahayim describes these uh different elements as a three-point civilization or like a tripod mm-hmm. uh, with the Imperial House balanced against the Federated Great Houses of the Landsrad with the Spacing Guild in between. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I butchered this a little bit before when I mentioned kind of the structure of the government. Right. And I like to paint Chome with much more influence, but it is kind of the overlying thing that they're all involved in. Mm-hmm. All three of these groups have a hand they play in Chome. 
within Chome, the Federated Houses and the Imperium uh, are the voting blocks of the directorship. Okay. The Bene Gesserit and the Spacing Guild are also part of it, but they are silent partners. Okay. And they're, they're ancient houses and like schools. Not houses, sorry. Um, what would they refer to it as in the first chapter? As uh, schools? The, the Bene Gesserit? Yeah. Or? The Bene, and the Spacing Guild. Oh, and the Mentats. Oh, and the Mentats. Uh, That's yeah. what it was. Uh, no, I, actually, I think it is the Spacing Guild that she talks about because they both have a, uh, a very training that started about the same time. Okay. Um, but yeah, they are, they are like schools. All right. Both of them, uh, people are enlisted in or chosen for. It takes a lot of time to train, mm. and you're kind of in each order for life. So, yeah, we've we've learned about several different uh, organizations and schools within here, including uh, what was the the Dr. Yui one? Oh, uh, that was the Souk School. Souk School. So we're, we've learned a, about a whole bunch of things here. Yeah, I, we've covered most of them. we got a few uh, little ones we're going to touch on when we meet the training instructors of Paul. Oh, uh, ooh, so there's like a okay. sword master and stuff. But right, cool, we've cool, hit cool. the Mentats, the Bene Gesserit, the Souk School, and the Twisted Mentat School by right. the Tleilaxlu. We touched on that a little bit. And the Spacing Guild is probably the most mysterious one that I'm still holding out on telling you about. Okay, I'm excited to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chome is not really in that three-point civilization. It's sort of like the, uh, the camera on top of the tripod, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and uh, Guy Salamahayim refers to it as the weather vane of our times. Does that mean sort of like uh, it sort of dictates where the winds of wealth and power go and how it changes on a whim? Sort of a metaphor for that? Or am I just, you know, drunkenly? Yeah, no, I mean, it's always, I, you follow the money in any given circumstance. Okay. That's what Chome lets you do. It's going to be reacting like our stock market does. If they think something bad's going to happen on a planet, like it's going to, the market's going <laughs> to The planet tank. stocks just sink. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is all tied to whole worlds. I do you think uh I don't know what the media is like in this this uh futuristic space age, but uh do you think people look at the stocks instead of the local news to be like what's going on? Yeah, probably. I can't imagine there would be it's a feudal government, so there can't be too much freedom of the press. Uh, <laughs> I've never met a reporter in Dune. I don't think one ever comes up. I don't which is funny because Frank Herbert was a reporter. You'd think he would have an inclination to like show that side of life. Right, right. Um, but getting word of mouth spread around is bad enough. Uh one of the the best bits, you know what it is? Maybe it's like, I think spies are kind of the reporters of the day. Oh, okay. Inter- yeah. Like there are intelligence services. So like the great houses are getting news. Yeah, and they're the ones going out, collecting yeah. information, bringing it back. And, and they're the only ones really caring about global trade. But, uh, the normal day to day guy. Yeah. I bet he just doesn't care. Huh? He might not even know who the emperor is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no reason to, right? I guess not. He's so far away. <laughs> we have an emperor. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Guy, <laughs> whatever you say, <laughs> never seen him. Oh my goodness. Uh, so I guess back to, uh, these two women guys, Helma Haim says they're going to try and salvage what they can from the key bloodlines. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, she says bloodlines. So is she referring to both the Atreides and the Harkonnens? Yeah, she is. And I think she's just taking care of the one that is in a most precarious situation right now. Uh, which the, is the Atreides. Yeah. The Atreides are most at risk. We have time to collect Fade Rautha. And do gotcha. whatever we can for the Harkonnens. They're not going anywhere just yet. Man, I want them to rescue Fade. 
He's just not in a good place. <laughs> you want to yeah, go take him home and give him <laughs> yeah. to a new family? I need some Betty Jesuit social services coming in this. Yeah, I think the damage is already done. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any getting fade back. Oh, man. Uh, we're going to see him quite a few times throughout the book. All right. So we're not, we're not done with that guy just yet. So after Mahayam kind of gives uh, Jessica this history lesson, Jessica's done with this mm-hmm. and uh, tells her, like, I don't need a review of history. Mahayam, not having everything, don't be facetious, gives her this rundown, uh, hammering in, like, these are all people that are influencing everything that's happening right now. That's mm-hmm. why I'm telling you about this. She's never bringing anything up for no reason uh, and wouldn't just go off on a tangent to fill in dead space. She's choosing her words very carefully each time. And Jessica is, again, she's got Paul on her mind and starts saying, well, if I get there, I'll I'll shield Paul then and I'll protect my child from this and uh, the dangers in the world. Which again, Mahayam, not going to have any of it. And just mocks <laughs> her for this of like, you know, there's weakness there. If you shield him too much, he's going to be too soft and he won't be able to achieve any destiny. That's just good parenting advice. Right. That's, yeah. This is when we switch to grandmother mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're going from teacher to grandmother. Gotcha. Like, gotcha. Do I have to fill in all these, you know, these roles in your life? And she also makes a line. So we know Gaius Helen Mahayam is the grandmother of Paul Atreides. Mother right. of uh, Jessica, which is you know I'm still I'm still on the line in the fence. I'm not sure how other people are taking it, but oh, they're gonna have to. But I think with this line, it also makes it worthwhile. So again, I'm telling you, she chooses her words very carefully. Mm-hmm. And when Jessica talks about shielding, a guy as Helen tells her, "You're as dear to me as any of my own daughters, but I cannot let that interfere with my duty." Which I love that she's telling the truth in every bit there. Mm. Just not that you also are my own just, daughter. Just like the first time we met her, like she she doesn't lie, but she doesn't always tell the whole truth. Yeah. Oh. So Jessica doesn't have truth sense like Paul so, does. Oh, so she can't tell. Right. So I feel like Paul might have picked that up in that situation. He's in the meditation yeah, but right he, now, though. She's careful sad, that he's not there. Specifically a soundproof room. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's carefully hidden away. Uh, we then get a, a word brought up, a uh, proper noun, this missionaria protectiva. Yeah, she's talking about, uh, like, asking if Arrakis is really as bad as they say. And mm-hmm. Gaius is like, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's gotten a little bit better since, what is it, the Missionary Protectiva? or Yeah, the Missionaria Protectiva has been in there and softened it up somewhat. What is that? What is, uh, did you look in the glossary at all? No, I didn't. I've been trying to, uh... Try and leave it open for, like, talks like this. So sure. We can, like... what, what is your impression of it, then, just from that clue? Uh, missionaria protectiva. So I imagine people that go like missionaries sort of going out into the world, trying to spread their message, but they, uh, maybe get some credibility by being almost like a small militia and trying to clean up the area and like create some sort of order in chaotic times and places. Okay. That's uh it's pretty close. Oh, you've, uh, you've armed the Bene Gesserit a little more than they are though. Uh, oh, it's the Bene Gesserit. Yeah, so this is a branch of the Bene oh, Gesserit. See, I didn't even know that. All right, yeah. Well, we're careful. We're slowly col- uh, coloring this in. Uh, missionaria protectiva would basically translate to protective missionary. Right, and they're you know they're religious too, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, but they're also so political. So this is a branch of the Bene Gesserit. We're going to go on a little tangent here. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is such a cool concept, though, that's going to keep coming up in the book, and we'll flesh it out a little more thoroughly. 
but it's a branch for trainees that don't qualify for further advancement within the Bene Gesserit. Mm. So specifically, they don't have an active dream trait that we're breeding for. So they're not going to become Reverend Mothers. They're not going to become uh, involved with the great houses and like uh, for breeding lines. Right. They're sort of like we're moving them off. Uh, they might be a redundancy in the breeding program. We keep them around for that. So they become battle nuns instead. Yeah. 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 So they're still <laughs> they're still trained sisters. And they're right. like, don't underestimate them at all. Like, mm-hmm. Just because they can't participate in this one thing, they go do this other thing, uh, which lets them exercise creativity on an unprecedented scale. So this organization uh, is a dead end that serves partly as a genetic backup uh, for these sisters and an output for them in a place where they can uh, influence the world. They are taught to insert songs, legends, nursery rhymes to influence an education system on all the far-flung corners of the universe. They go to any habited world. You sneak a sister down in there. They are called pattern makers. They uh, and they go on. They basically put in um, kind of like a phrase counterphrase espionage thing within various parts Ooh. of a society, and they try to pull the threads of a society to make it so if a stranger were to approach, that stranger would be tested and brought into the tribe if they pass these tests. They're like guerrilla educators. Yeah, but influencing it in the Bene Gesserit way. So this test is meant to weed out non-humans right. in areas where the Bene Gesserit aren't present or have much influence. Okay, and that is wild. Yeah, but they're trained for various levels of civilization too. So like they could be going into more nomadic people. They could be going into like established towns and cities. So the, with the Missionaria Protectiva, it's not like widely known that uh, they're at a location or place, right? So maybe the Harkonnens it's and Titer don't know that they are there? Correct. It's not known that they operate okay. on this level. So that's that's our first wild card here in this, this plan. Is, this is sort of a secret thing the Bene Gesserit do. All right. Um, I believe there are some people that are onto it, but they don't have proof of it. Okay. And the pattern makers, as they're called, uh, they have a book that they reference called the Panoplia Propheticus. <laughs> okay, tell me what that is. That is a collection of every myth a pattern maker has ever seeded on a world in the universe. Oh, whoa. So they keep those all in one big archive, and then they're constantly, when we're training our sisters, mm-hmm. they're learning various phrases, counterphrases, so if they're ever in a situation, it'll just come up into their head, and they'll be able to kind of manipulate these people. So you could protect a Bene Gesserit that's ever in a dangerous spot. Or if a Bene Gesserit ends there for some reason. Mm -hmm. Or if another Bene Gesserit just needs to infiltrate that group to carry on with the Missionaria Protectiva, say, 500 years or 1,000 years after the first one. Okay. Because, again, it's on that huge, long scale. They're and so cool. So that, uh, that document, too, uh, those words are all taken from actual words. Uh, Penoplia is from Panoply, which is a, uh, it's like a complete set of armor that's on display. Well, what's the so it's a, etymology of that? Is that Greek? It's a Greek word. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, a, Greek. it's like a hoplite's armor. Okay. Is what it oh, okay. came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then uh, the other definition for it, which I think is even more apt, and this was the third one within the list, is a collection of weapons or of various parts of armor displayed as a trophy. 
So I think the weapon oh. part kind of stu- weapon and armor could both apply to kind of these and how they're right. used where they're defending protectiva, especially I guess lean towards armor, mm. but it's a way for the defend the Bene Gesserit when they're there or your sisters in a time of danger. Gotcha. So we, we're probably going to see them a little bit in the story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, propheticus just means prophetic in Latin. Hmm. Uh, it was a strange root of it. So I mean, they are kind of prophetic, so that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, well the, well, the reverend mothers are. These right. sisters aren't reverend mothers that are right. going out and doing I mean, it. yeah, yeah, you're right. But uh, uh, just the Bene Gesserit as a whole. As a whole, correct. Yeah, their their leadership has that ability. Uh, so that's the missionary protectiva, and we're just learning that that is in place on Arrakis. There's a known quality to at least guys Helen Mahayim. Mm-hmm. Of like, hey, you can count on this, so... Letting Jessica know there are some things. There's some options. Yeah, that you can count on uh, that will be unique to you to unlock. Oh, man. This is, again, I equated this to like a chess match earlier between uh, Mentats. Now I just feel like it's not just Mentats. It's everyone's involved. And I feel like every chapter we're just taking different turns in this game. Yeah. Yeah. And And watching like... Right now, I very much feel we're putting all the pieces on the board. We haven't even seen. That's the, probably a better way to think like about that. Arrakis yeah. is the board, and we're not even there yet. Oh, uh, man. I want to make a little chess board in the middle of this table now and just like. Everybody moving around. Yeah. So you have uh, Thufir moving against Peter, Piter. You have <laughs> the guys, Helen Mahayam, kind of moving behind all of them. Right. The Baron is sort of moving along Piter's track. The emperor we discussed has his own little plan going on. So yeah, how many colors are in this game? There's, there's going to be quite a few. Uh, we haven't even heard the Duke Leto's side of this whole thing yet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he also has a little bit of a, a gambit up his sleeve. Uh, maybe that, something that uh, is the reason the emperor is just like, man, Leto, gotta mm-hmm. gotta take that guy off the board. There's there's a little special reason that I didn't tell you. Of the ones that I did allude to. Oh, so beyond beyond just his popularity. Oh, man. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we're still in the morning room. We are. And this is about the time after the, um, we have this kind of comforting discussion between Gaius Hell and Mahayam and Jessica. Mm-hmm. And she's being a little more matronly to her. She um, kind of um, ends the conversation and lets Jessica know, I have to be leaving soon. Let's finish this business I'm really here for. Bring Paul back in. We need to talk about these dreams. Right. The dreams. The dreams. Paul has said we had one prophetic dream in that first chapter. Yeah. He had just uh, just that night. Right. Uh, yeah. Right after he sees uh, guys him for the first time. All right. We had that one. So Paul comes in and he I, yeah. I noticed that he nods to her like an equal instead of uh, the first time where. You know, he plays the safe one. Like, I don't know who you are. Like, yeah, this the one is the neutral. Like, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. A little bit of an upgrade. Yeah. Uh, but still very prideful of his station. Prideful, but life. it does give you sort of insight into sort of how he's going to go about interacting with her from the mm-hmm. get go. Something where we see this development. That's uh, Paul reacted within a few hours. And you can kind of mirror that to how Fade was reacting to that whole conversation where he's always in the same temperament, that whole thing. He never changed or evolved or grew or something. Right. Whereas we're watching Paul digest and really reflect and reflect. And And having his training as a a mentat to be, that's probably giving him the time to really process that a lot faster than most people would. Yeah, mentat and Bene Gesserit. Man. Both that that observation of minutia combined with just the sheer volume of data that he's able to go through. There's never been an individual with both of these uh, schools of training together, has there? 
Um, no, there probably has been a Mentat okay. sister, but definitely not a boy. Okay. Uh, that would be very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few other men that have been a Jesuit training, not to the extent Paul does, but kind of in similar circumstances where it's given to them off the books kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last thing we kind of hear in this whole chapter is guy is hell and telling her, just keep training them. Don't worry about the <laughs> rules. Like, just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, so that, I think that happens pretty often. Okay. Uh, when they get into this dream, it's another dream that takes place on Arrakis. Right. And we open in a cavern. There's water. Now, do we know for, I mean, like, we don't really, I mean, as readers, we know it's got to be Arrakis. That's where we're going. But nothing specifically says it's Arrakis in the dream. Hmm. I think you are right. Without the outright mention of all the sand and the reference of there being no water. Right. Because we do have him explaining a poem, and he specifically has to describe all the water. Oh, you're right. That, that is a good hint to it. And the uh, so in this beginning, there's a girl there, and she has eyes that are all blue with no whites in them. Now, oh. Piter was the only other person we've met with blue eyes, and the Baron tells you how weird that is for someone not on Arrakis. Right, and we, we just established it's like in the air. Everyone... Yeah, Arrakis part is going to have that. Yeah, okay. So I, th- I think evidence is almost inconvertible. Incon- yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It, you, you know it's got to be. Uh, and so he is telling the Reverend Mother about this girl that he's going to meet there. Uh, very skinny with big eyes. And we're in this little place in the rocks where it's sheltered. It's almost night, but it's hot. And I can see patches of sand out in an opening in the rocks. We're waiting for something for me to go meet some people. And she's frightened, but trying to hide it from me. And I'm excited. And she says, tell me about the waters of your home world, Usal. Yeah, so he doesn't know what Usal means. It's not his world. His world is Kaladan. Right. And he thinks like, uh, he reflects for a moment, even in the middle of this conversation, like, was she calling me Usal? Is that like a, a name or something or a pet name or nickname? Like, I don't know. I, I like that, too, that it's genuinely that he's still thinking. Yeah. And always processing and coming up with new conclusions. And that I feel like he does spawn that in the moment mm-hmm. of talking to her. He's had these moments of realization and kind of shifts up. Uh, have you ever heard that line before? Because that's kind of one of the famous ones from the movie, too. No, I've never heard of this before. You've never heard the tell me about the waters of your home world. Usal. It's like one of those famous movie quotes. or Yeah, book quotes. it's just one of the cheesy ones they say to like Usal, who is our, our guy, uh, Paul. It's like it's the uh, hate me like your French girls of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. With them looking into each other's eyes. Because <laughs> okay. uh, we, will, we will get to this scene later in the book. Okay, and so oh, these okay. are prophetic dreams, right? Right. Uh, we do get to see them. Um, I uh, there's one thing I wanted to mention too, because uh, well, I guess before that, uh, what do you think Usal is? Usal, maybe like, well, she has the blue eyes, so she's probably a native of Arrakis. Um, maybe I don't know how far ahead it takes place in. He, she's scared. He's excited. Maybe something crazy is happening that's never been done before. Uh, maybe it's a uh, maybe it's a word to like comfort her in a sense, like uh, like uh, like Big Brother or something like that. Like a, like a moniker. Yeah, something to sort of give her a semblance of like uh, safety. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it means stranger. Or maybe it means uh, dopey fat kid. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Could be anything. Yeah. Any idea who the girl uh, going to be? No. Oh wait. No. Wait. 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 Oh, wait a second. 
Is it Princess Irulan? No, no. Damn. Good guess. That is like oh. one, of the, one of the only other girls I guess we know. I mean, know, like, but how met. many choices do I have? Yeah, no. Irulan is she's at home reading a book um, <laughs> while we're out doing all this stuff. <laughs> she's damn it, probably reading a book. <laughs> all right, that, that's a good guess though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, um, and I don't remember. She is also in his first dream too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. Well, uh, or is that just sand? No, so this is the this is the one dream that we learned about. It's the same one. He's just recapping it. Um, he does say that he's dreamed of her before, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the and he's mentioned uh, about guys Helen as well, right? Like he's mentioned. Uh, well, he tells her that in the dream he tells the girl, "You put a stamp of strangeness on me." Mm, and that's um, part of the, that's part of that's interesting that that's part of what he dreamed about right i was just this future conversation talking about this day right i thought he had had some dreams like referring to her before as well though he just didn't know who she was or what she was going to do possible so Most. maybe uh it, maybe an interesting concept to think about is maybe he only uh has his prescience on certain events or gets a glimpse of certain events depending on what he's already experienced Almost like a prerequisite, like, um, since you finally met this woman, now we'll give you a little bit more information. Okay, like his subconscious has yeah. something to cling on to. Yeah, and something sort of like, like that. Decipher. It's it's, it's just it's, a thought. Yeah, it's not. You're not off. I mean, it's you're nothing but wild speculation at this point. Right. His prescience is very much not under his control. It is it sort of happens to him. So right, we'd never get um, too much of an explanation of what it is like. So I think any speculation you kind of want to go with, uh, and that seems really reasonable. Of it, it's like these sort of triggering events are making he looks in that direction. Maybe when he's in the presence mm-hmm. next time to know what he's looking for, um, uh, shapes make sense or something. This was uh, really cool because it says uh, as he starts talking about this dream. Uh, she, uh, guys, Helen Mahayim asks, like, do you remember all your dreams um, of the future? And he says he remembers every dream, but knows that only some are worth remembering. So that also, uh, I just thought that was a cool quote because it uh, refers to his ability to just take in information and store it and immediately be able to recall it. But and also recall it in full. You recall it in full, but also this uh, instinct that somehow, and he's not quite sure how, he knows which ones are important and which ones are worth bringing back up like tag a little star on that put it in your bookmark folder mm-hmm. yeah uh, alluding to the truth sense yeah exactly then, yeah knowing just his veracity within this oh, dream do you think the truth sense is what dictates that and the fact that he knows like this one is important yeah, because yeah, I it's think, real i think that's the influence oh remember, that's cool that true sense isn't a fact thing it's sort of like yeah you know your belief in it as well mm-hmm. we were discussing with mahayam i mean like she can say these sort of ambiguous words as long as she knows them to be true right uh is a weird workaround for that right. so yeah i think that is what's happening there is that with paul it's always that his unique position is he is the nexus point of all these different schools mm-hmm. and all these different methods of training are kind of all superimposed on just him. And that's giving him a very unique insight when they overlap. Man, that's, yeah. Just so cool. So do we only have to do one chapter a week. Like can we just skip ahead and do more. I know we're, we're getting to that point. Uh, there's a, there's a lot to cover though. In each one, we still have a bit to go. Don't we? We do. Cause after this, uh, dreams, then she still got more to talk about with him because we still got to go over some Quisa Tatarak stuff. Mm-hmm. And she offers to give Paul a few hints. 
Paul. Yeah, Paul doesn't seem like he really cares at this point, though. No, I think after he saw through that, not the lie or the mistruth that she said last time, he's Mm -hmm. not concerned with anything she has to tell him. He's probably been thinking about all of that up until this point, and he has only one thing on his mind. It's going to be his father. But Mahayam kind of stops him dead in his track. Just like... She she says... Um, I see the possibility in you, like the way your mother sees it. She sees it through a mother's eyes, though. In you, I see nothing more than possibility. Um, sort of referring to the fact that, you know, he's not the chosen one. He's not the the Kwisatz Haderach, the Benny Gesserit totality, whatever they refer to it as. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that it's not just that he doesn't care. She waits for him to say something like she wants him to say something almost. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that pause. I thought that that was important to look at, though. Right, it is, and she, you know, it's very much another test she's giving him. Mm-hmm. What do you think she expected from him in that pause? I don't know. That's what I've never been able to really fill in. And then she just comes back. She's sort of impressed that he chooses to say nothing. Right. Not Maybe not impressed, but just doesn't take it as a demerit to him and says, you've got depth to you, I'll give you that. Right. Uh, and do you think that's why she continues with this, like, hint, or do you think she would have done it before, like, Regardless of what he answered. Mm, pro- probably regardless. I don't know what she would have said. Because right. uh, she's trying way. to save the bloodline. So yeah. any, anything I can tell you to help you out. Yeah, she she does have a vested interest in this regardless of how Paul feels. Right. About it. Uh, you know, he's just, he's a pawn in her plan no matter what. Uh, hmm. He can just either be a participant or not. Now, then Gaius, Helen Mahayam starts giving him these enigmatic hints in just sort of I think uh, lines of Zen. It's like some uh, idiot uh, idioms of uh, mystic wisdom. Mm-hmm. Some grandmothers buy, you know, candy or toys, but no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they're coming quick. Write them down. Yeah. Uh, where I think the greatest one that we both had put in our notes was this willow tree quote. Mm-hmm. If you want to go ahead, I don't yeah. have it right available. Yeah, she uh, she says that the willow submits to the wind and prospers until one day it is many willows. A wall against the wind, this is the willow's purpose. And again, it's every time he hears the word purpose, he just, he yeah. loses it inside. He just, he hates that word and feels that there is some dark, sinister meaning attached well, to it. Yeah, it was like, uh, I think it specifically says that it buffets him. Yeah. And it's just like this word just kind of hits him and envelops him. Do you think that's because he senses there is a greater meaning behind it? Or do you think it's just because he's a 15-year-old with teen angst? Oh, it's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he's feeling that uh, there's something. And it doesn't have to do with the person that tells him. Because I think other, other people are going to use this word around him. And it always has that same effect. Okay. So this is something Paul is like tapped into something and this word just triggers him every time. And it's just the word purpose and he always combines it with terrible purpose. Mm -hmm. And it just reverberates in him. Then Guys Halamahayam turns to Jessica at this point and she tells her that she knows she's been training Paul in the way. Right, the Benny Gesserit way. She can see all the signs of it in him, uh, which I think is interesting, and that she should keep doing it, and in fact, teach him the voice. That she, uh, in her position, if uh, Helen Gaius, or, uh, if Gaius, Gaius Helen, <laughs> Helen Mahayim was in her position, she would have done the same, like, 
What's she, she said something, uh, the devil rules. take the rules. Yeah, like, I would have done the same. You know, it just feels like the Benny Jarzet have a lot of rules, but no one actually follows them. Yeah, some, uh, I bet they were originally called guidelines, and someone just changed the word. Uh, but yeah, there is no Bene Gesserit that follows all the rules. Every single one of them, skip it at some so point. So wait, that brings me back to that immortal, that immortal Bene Gesserit. Like, hey, they don't always follow the rules, I'm just saying. Ooh, but I don't know if that necessarily means they've broken every rule. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, I think they, they fudged these little they're, ones. They're, I see possibility. You you want it to happen. <laughs> I do. You got your own uh, fan fiction. You can start. I'll start writing right away. Renegade Bene Gesserit. <laughs> As I know nothing else about this universe. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll have very different powers than the real <laughs> ones. Sorry, this universe. <laughs> um, so yeah, she tells him to teach him the voice. Skip the normal order of training, too. Just right. give him the good stuff. Don't worry about the little stuff for and now. He's going to need the voice in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and we know that he's uh, already started in it, too. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah or that he's got, like, a good foundation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly how close he is to that. I'm sure we'll get to see him use it at some point in this book. It'll be yeah. a really cool moment. No, he's he's pretty developed. Um, he's going to go through some thresholds of training uh, as we're with him. So. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I can't really tell you how far away he is, um, but we'll see it in the moment and be able to judge it. You okay. Feel for it. Uh, that's sort of the last bit guys. Helen Mahayam has in this chapter. She doesn't she mention something about his dad. Oh yeah. She, her, uh, the, yeah, this real Benny Gesserit lesson. Um, mm-hmm. Paul was super concerned with one thing and that was just the fate of his father. Right. When she was giving him these hints, he is kind of like, I don't care about that. Why don't we talk about my dad? You know, you haven't said a thing about him all day. And so she does. uh, Do you think he senses that there is something wrong in the air as well? So I think Lady Jessica knows that there's some sort of trap with Arrakis. And I think Duke Leto is surely aware of it. Do you think Paul is also uh, on that same Starting to put some pieces together. Yeah. 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 I think he's weirded enough. And he kind of overheard them talking about it. Uh and so he asked from the soundproof them. room. Well, no, before because oh, okay. there are conversations in between. Oh, okay. okay, and that's why he directly asks her. Gotcha. Uh, when he finally comes out of that room, to be like, "Look," and she comes back. That, but for your father, nothing. When you've learned to accept that as a fact, you've learned a real Bene Gesserit lesson. Mm. Just the facts of life. There's no way to change this one. Oh man, uh, we're told over and over again that kind of that Lido's fate is fact. So in. With her foresight, she sees that there's a chance that Paul can make it out of this. There's a possibility of it. It may not be easy. It may depend on a lot of different factors, but there's a chance for him. With Duke Leto, she, like, the writing's on the wall. She knows that he's not getting out of this mm-hmm. alive. And she is in a very unique position to know that thoroughly. Right. Because she's the emperor's true sayer. That's got a lot of weight to it. Yeah. So anyone, uh, we talked before that the uh, Harkonnens would have courted them mm-hmm. to get them involved in this scheme. That person would have had to stood or stand before the emperor and her to tell them this. So all the facts of the case were said before Gaius Helamahayam, uh, when she would have known if they were lying at right. any point in it too. So they would have had to walk a very straight line uh, to be able to get anything by her. What was the uh, what was the word for the uh, the royal court or the uh, uh, the chamber? Well, Imperial de la... The one from the glossary game? Yeah, uh, yeah. That was a Salam leak. The Salam leak. Uh, that's not where that would take place. Oh, no. Um, that is a an Imperial... Yeah, actually, I guess it is... In this book, it's just the Imperial audience chamber. Right. 
in uh so that would be i imagine she would always be there yeah just, uh yeah discern behind. what truths are going on yep and she stands uh there's a big throne yeah. it's made out of a uh, haggle quartz uh it's like this blue green t- or like teal kind of color oh, with i so think cool. like a uh, yellow tiger stripes kind of in it like a marble and uh, it's all carved out of one block. The emperor sits it's on like it. a tiger eye marble almost. That uh, like I think yeah, like you know the look of a tiger eye yeah. and marble. Yeah, I think the quartz has like that stripe through it. I need a throne like that. That'd yeah, be great. It, it is amazing. I don't know why I need a throne, but I want it. Maybe it's on very, wheels so I can like move around expensive. my computer desk. <laughs> yeah, just dragging this quartz. <laughs> Might scratch the floor. <laughs> Digging into the wood. Uh, but that is uh, what she gives Paul. So he is just left distraught. Right, this Doesn't, you know what? First part of the day sucked. Second part of the day the, also sucked. <laughs> and so Gaius Held Mahayam from there goes to leave and at, on her way out turns to Jessica. It said well it says that they have a, a moment uh, Yeah, it's a flicker sign of understanding. That's right. Uh what does that mean? That means, understanding of that like it's all up to you now. No way. I think even more elaborate. So the Bene Gesserit are able to have kind of like conversations without words. Just based off body language. Gestures, body language. To anyone else, it would look like, you know, uh, uh, telepathy almost. Yeah, I, I think honestly to anyone else, it might even just look like two girls standing still. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like they're that good. Wow. And we're talking like, you know, crossing the fingers for a second, mm-hmm. putting them back to the station. Moving your arm five degrees or something oh like really gosh. just little bits like that. So when it says they had a flicker sign of understanding, I think there's a lot that is said there. And I don't know what to um, get out of it. Maybe I can, something I can to only revisit. extrapolate so far. Uh, but I, I, it leaves me wondering a lot, especially with what happens next. Because the next thing, uh, and I'm going to actually, I'm just going to read this, uh, this last kind of uh, paragraph in the chapter. But Jessica had caught one glimpse of the Reverend Mother's face as she turned away. There had been tears on the seamed cheeks. The tears were move, were more unnerving than any other word or sign that had passed between them this day. So, so Reverend, so guys, Helen Mahayam had tears on her face. She started crying as she uh, she turned. Oh. And when she turns, it says in the book that, you know, the people in the room are closed are gone from her. already. Yeah. As soon as she closes that door, she just removes them from her Isolates mind. Isolates it out. But she's already having this kind of moment. Oh, just my this, God. It takes that long for her shield kind of to fall down. Wow. When she thinks she's safe. And she moves out. And the, with the amount of control you've seen her have this mm-hmm. whole day. That's a very emotional moment for her. And again, knowing that she's the grandmother and this is her family it's and her, her daughter, her to, grandson. To whatever extent that matters to the Bene Gesserit, because for sure, Gaius Helen Mahayam is a professional first and her duties I, unquestionably is, are but, the priority. You know, but it, she indulges herself in the moments where it's acceptable and it doesn't, uh, it comes secondary to the Bene Gesserit orders. I think Jessica is right, though. She's not infallible. And there's a lot of proof there, not just with, I think this moment is definitely a prime example, but also in the the first chapter where she thought to herself, like, could this boy be the Kwisatch Haderach? Like, nope, get hope out of your mind because it, hope interferes with uh, your observation of the truth. Mm. Um, do you think that, she, I think she mentions hope in this chapter as well. Um, oh, that's right. She says to Jessica, uh, kindness forces me to tell you that there's little chance your lad will be the Bene Gesserit totality. You mustn't let 
yourself hope too much. Do you think that that's maybe also her talking to herself a little bit there? No. Oh, so I can see how you get that. I kind of think when she says that she is more bringing up like a Bene Gesserit axiom to tell Jessica, you know, for all the things you're about to go to through hope is going to might be um, more detrimental to your progress or more of a crutch than just facing the reality of any situation. Gotcha. But do you think she takes that same advice to heart? Is that like how I think Jessica receives it? No, I mean, do you think that uh, Gaius would see it? Kind of, yeah, because I think, again, she needs the bloodlines to be saved. Right, but I mean, like, but that, the choice, I think the choosing of the words would be my defense here, that she might mean both and very much want them to be kind of uh, together in this meeting. Uh, they quote Bene Gesserit things at each other to make a point. So, like, there's one line, um, I don't know actually where it is in this uh, discussion between them, but the Jessica turns to her and says, I am Bene Gesserit. I exist only to serve Jessica quoted. Mm-hmm. That's what it says to her. And that's because that's uh, from your oath you take when you become a Bene Gesserit. Uh, I think it was like right around the uh, history lesson she had received. Right. Uh, and so that's really part, important to him. Also saying like, I don't have to like it, but this is what I mm-hmm. have to do. Um, so in that moment where she pretty much just like turns it back on the Bene Gesserit to uh, give uh, a son to Duke Leto. Uh, how does that figure into it? I live only to serve. Do you think she was trying to serve a different purpose or greater purpose? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess she said she did see possibility in Paul, but that's also again through a mother's eyes. Mm-hmm. And could have been after. No, I think she did say, cause that was sort of the reasoning why, like I saw the possibility before in the conception mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, I think that one is the uh, the Bene Gesserit always break the rules. Uh, that's where that one goes. That's where we put that pile. <laughs> that's where that column is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> They're oh. very unique. We can. I think we can at least say that Gaius has got to be sad because she thinks that you know these members of her line, not just the work that she as uh, a Proctor Superior has done, but like the fact that they are blood related to her are going to be passing possibly. Yeah, it's got to. I, I think the work is equal each time. That's that's the point I want to kind of make with her. Oh, so as this like, is just a double so slap in the face to her. Yeah, like I, I think unquestionably the work is very important. The the encyclopedia really hit that home with her article mm. uh, where there's so many notations of like, yes, she's part of this family, but like she did everything for this breeding line. Uh, she and leaves. Do we get to see her again anytime soon or is it going to be a, a while? It's going to be a good while. Um think she's in one middle scene and then she'll be at the end i would really like to do an in-depth on uh gaius at some point because she is just a really cool character I, there's a lot in her yeah i got a, well, i got a little bit um well actually we can start into it now of i want to talk to you about jessica's training in the bene Gesserit and what that was like um, okay. for her as a kid because we know it overlaps so much with gaius helmahayam mm-hmm uh, was it 15, 16 years? I forget what it was. Oh, yeah. as uh, 14 years as her handmaiden? As her serving wench. Yeah. Yeah. To the, uh, while she was at school. That's right. And we don't know Jessica's grandfather. Right. 
That's the that's the mystery. A mystery, uh, specifically the one who cannot be named. Do we and get so, to find out in this book? I will not name him, and I will not allude to such things. Ah, oh, damn you! Uh, yeah, you'll find out in this book. Okay, that's cool. Um, so, not knowing who the grandfather is, we know the grandmother. The grandmother mm. did sleep with the grandfather. That's how babies right, are obviously. Made. Well, you never know, well, Mike. No, it's not Dune. always with her. She can do it by herself. <laughs> yeah. We've seen there are many other options. The Tylaxalu. The they can make babies all day, too. Wait, what? They genetically uh, grow people. Oh. Yeah, like, no rules. Oh, so it really is a build a mentat. Yeah. Oh, okay. your business just expanded. To yeah. Another. We can do it from birth. <laughs> You're just, like, cobbling grown people together. Oh, my gosh. But back on point. Uh, so once she was pregnant, when she gave birth to Jessica, uh, so she's part of the sisterhood at this point. She isn't mm. a reverend mother just yet. She returns to the planet Wallach nine, which uh, we find out is in Jessica's kind of when she's remembering her taking of the Gamjabar. That's the planet it was on. Right. And that's where I said the kind of the home base of the Bene Gesserit is. There is a place. It's the Bene Gesserit Kinder House on Wallach Nine. The Kinder House. The Kinder House. Oh. So they got this little place for all the kids. Like and a little the girls bit out of German's there. book there. Yeah. And they are, you can tell them by when they are just a little initiate and they haven't been tested yet. Uh, they just have these like kind of brown, um, long sleeve, long leg clothes on with a little tunic over them. Uh-huh. And at the time of their first menses, uh, she would be given the Gom Jabar test. They're... First menses? Menses. So I had to look this one up. I thought the spelling had corrected senses. Menses is just an old word for menstruation. Oh, so when they hit puberty. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, whoever wrote this, so this was written in the six in 84. Was uh, this written in 84? This, the Dune Encyclopedia was. Oh, God. Uh, where okay. I'm referencing this information. And the author of it would probably have been 60 then because that word fell out of usage. I was looking on like the Google use of it. It stopped being used at like 1910. That's really cool. You can look up Google usage on like specific vocabulary. Yeah. Oh, and there are so many words that I find of this book that all peak in 1960. There's a lot of insight there. That's there. That's Um, really cool. So there's, uh, it's a cool little word to use. And honestly, it is one that I don't mind saying out loud. And I don't feel like it has any connotation that people may would be uncomfortable with your menses. Hmm. Well, it's delightful. Maybe it'll catch on. Who knows? Yeah. So that's when she would have received the Gom Jabar that mm-hmm. Paul went through. Right. And, and it's, it's about the time that uh, Paul got it, too. Like, right around that age of, like... Yeah, so right? it'd be, like, around 13 for a girl. Yeah. Probably, yeah. like, 15. So Paul probably training started a little late. Other right. And, and I mean, you know, boys mature a lot slower. Yeah. For dummies. I wonder, too, if she wouldn't want Paul to fail. Maybe held him back a year. Uh, just to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> it, failure means death. <laughs> That's true. Um, so after, uh, if they survived the Gom Jabbar, they moved to the chapter house for training. And this is one of the first times we start to separate the girls out. And we end up with two groups. We have the Verge, who are the potential reverend mothers, and the Proficua. I might be butchering these uh, words. They're kind of Latin roots. Right. And those are just going to be future sisters. So the Missionaria Protectiva branch. The ones gonna, that aren't going to be. Yeah, they're going to be pulled from that line. Uh, the cool bit, a little origin of the word. Uh, Verge is the plural of Virga. Virga is a streak of rain or snow that dissipates in falling and does not reach the ground. Commonly appearing descending from a cloud layer. What? So I thought that was a very poetic Interesting. kind of thing to choose from of these reverend mothers. They're going to be the sort of ascension of, a, you know, apotheosis of a human being. 
is this rain that doesn't touch the ground. Hmm. The other word, much less poetic. Uh, (laughs) It ended up being an Italian root from what I traced it through. Mm. Um, Going, so it's a feminine word. You switch it over to the masculine. You get uh, proficuo. uh, And it means profitable or advantageous. This is the difference between varsity and JV. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it just sounds like the second group is like, it's not a loss. (laughs) (laughs) We still believe in you. So... At that point, the sisters are in that group for, I believe, like a three to five years. Uh-huh. And if they succeed that training, they are given the ceremony of the initial oath. So this is where we're going to get our little overlap. So Jessica would have been in the school now for a while uh-huh. doing her training. And the proctor superior administers the oath. So that would be Gaius Helen Right. And all the sisters would be lined up, and the proctor superior goes to each individual, touching her forehead. She repeats the following words. So I got a little passage here. Ooh. And the bit, uh, I think, really ties into what you were bringing up, where uh, guys tell them looking into the future isn't infallible, mm-hmm. that they always see the potential. And I think this is kind of on purpose. And we're going to see in here. This is the quote. I stand in the sacred human presence. As I do now, so should you stand someday. I pray to your presence that this be so. The future remains uncertain, and so it should, for it is the canvas upon which we paint our desires. Thus always the human condition faces a beautifully empty canvas. We possess only this moment in which to dedicate ourselves continuously to the sacred presence with which we share and create. So uh, the mo- the part of the future remains uncertain, and it should. Hmm. So that every human is always facing unlimited potential, and nothing is sort of set in stone. That's that's interesting if we think back to Paul's particular situation, and his doesn't seem to be like, might happen, it seems will happen. On a minor, you mean just with the events happening to his father? No, and the fact that like, oh, he's got this vision of this girl in this cave and has this conversation and he doesn't say, like, oh, that might happen. He knows it's going to happen. Um, yes, but uh, he's not going to go out and influence the events of the world to make it happen. Okay. I think that's kind of what I'm pointing out. Oh, with okay. the Bene Gesserit as a whole and their machinations that they're dealing with. So this is Paul dreaming of seeing a girl in a cave and talking for one As day. we all have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the Bene Gesserit have these operations where they're trying to wrestle control of humanity, mm-hmm. you know, f- and, like, guide us for the rest of time. So I think that's more what we're talking about, this macro scale of life mm-hmm. and, like, locking in the whole race. Then the interesting bit here is that uh, after that – so that's what uh, the guys Helen Mahayim would say to each initiate. Okay. The candidate then faced the sisterhood, so they turned to all the sisters aligned, and they repeat their first oath. I am Bene Gesserit. I exist only to serve. That's their first oath? That's their first oath once they pass that training. So that'd be what Jessica would have said. And that is uh, where I'm going to leave us on Jessica's training. So from there, she would join on as a service service wench and go through a few more tests. And uh, we'll bring those up more once we see Jessica back in the picture Mm -hmm. as the book goes. What, uh, What group was Jessica put into? So Jessica would have been uh, a member of the potential Reverend Mother. Yeah, I think she would have been the Virga 
because or the Virgea because her line is so prominent in the Quisach Hadarak plan. Right. Um, but I don't think she was going to be a revered mother because I think she would have stayed as a breeder and was put in as the concubine. And can, that- can't you be both though? Because uh guys, Helen Mahayim is a reverend mother and she also, we know for a fact is Jessica's mother. Right. But her breeding was very temporary. She just went to get the seed. She wasn't part of the house. Oh, so it's like a one night stand like, Hey, just stopping in. Yeah. Jessica was getting real drunk and then <laughs> off back in his face. Yeah. It was even a little more. She did. Uh, she took on a fake name. Oh, uh, she, she did some espionage to oh, get in there. I'm learning more. Uh, but I can't tell you who ah. she went to or where. <laughs> She went to a certain place and did a little thing and had to lie to make it happen. And it was very tricky. Oh, man. So she really was just there for the DNA. Yeah. Jessica was sold to the Atreides. Oh. Yeah. So they had a bit of agency, but were definitely manipulated to take her. By the Bene Gesserit? Manipulation wise? No, like sold by the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's how they fund their operation. Oh, I guess that makes sense. It's kind of like having a Mentat. Of just a different caliber. Right. They do different things. Some houses don't trust them. Um, when we meet, uh, like the Atreides Mentat, he actually doesn't really like them. But well, we're going to meet him uh, oh, in coming chapters. Uh, Thufir, right? Yeah, Thufir Hawat. Right, right, right. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> anytime they, they talk about guys out behind him, he, he throws out witch and all those <laughs> terrible words we've heard. Wow, okay. Um, with guys out him, so I'm going to stop there for how Jessica progressed through the Bene Gesserit. Guys, Helen Mahayam, we went through the four ranks of uh, Reverend Mother, mm-hmm. being uh, regular Reverend Mother, Proctor, Proctor General, and Proctor Superior. Proctor Superior being the top of it. There are two more academic degrees that can be earned uh, only by a Reverend Mother, which is interesting. So this is just from the Dune Encyclopedia. I, I don't think there's ever one in the book, uh, which is weird. Okay. So there's uh, Eruditica and Doctissima. Doctissima. So a doctorate, and I'm afraid I don't know the root of the other word. Uh, the two other professions that can only be filled by a reverend mother are those of embaktea, so an ambassador, and uh, cogita vera. Any idea what that one is? Cogita vera. Yeah. It's the one title you would be able to know. Cogita uh, makes me think like cognitive. Yeah. Vera. Vera is is that based off of the uh, drug or oh uh, uh, that's the truth right yeah yeah so the truth, truth drug. so okay truth oh, slayer ah okay yeah. Huh. yeah that's what I the, the breakdown of it I thought it was kind of cool so like cognitive truth is what it sounds like and I believe really ties into how we were describing it of like what you believe to be true mm-hmm. uh, and she's able to tell that distance their distri- um, difference so. Going even a little bit deeper, uh, I can keep going to Bene Gesserit all day. I mean, like, I'm loving it, so yeah, give me a little bit more. Yeah, they're, um, they're structured like uh, the American government. So they have a legislative body, an executive body, and a judicial body that are formed of groups of sisters that are all, you know, doing various actions. And we want to focus on the executive body. Uh, because they are called, and this goes to the the Latin word for mothers is matres. Okay. Uh, that ends up getting used later in the series, and I did not know this when I first read the book, so I was really confused by this group. They're called like the honorable matres, so they're honorable mothers that okay. come back. They're like this offspring group, um, but they are rooted in, and I like that they have a kind of a history that that's where the word comes from, is it's taken from the core of the actual Bene Gesserit, hmm. which are never introduced. 
So the executive branch are the matres executrices. Uh, Singular mater executrix. That sounds like an executioner almost, but I mean, it probably means executive. Exactly. Yeah. Executive mother. (laughs) That's kind of what it would be. Um, That's the mom you don't want to piss off because if she says your full name, you are done. So uh, Matre, as I said, is mother. The executress, it's in Anglo-French or uh, medieval Latin were the two roots that I found for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a woman executor, an administrator of the law. And then the third definition I really loved uh, because I think, again, the it's a little more poetic. Uh, This is a wielder of fate. Ooh, right. That one oh, just fits with the kind of how they shape time and these macro scales. Not just time, but like how they, they shape genetic lines. Yeah. Make plans these based long, off of that these as long-term well. decisions that are just Ooh. like affecting us on a whole. Uh, so this executive branch, it consists of a general council that has 13 reverend mothers on it. Okay. Perfectly lucky number. Ten of these women are uh, matres felici. Uh, Felicia Simae. Latin and wine don't go well Oof, together. No, nope, there's a lot of S's. <laughs> Felicia May. Felicia Mea. Yeah, that's it. Felicia Mea. Who, this is a group that are elected among the Proctor General and the Proctor Superior. So we're talking the two highest classes of the Reverend Mothers are choosing amongst themselves to make these 10 sisters. Right. And the rest are the, those. Three individuals, right? So oh, the the two. other three are not elected. Uh, these reverend mothers are in a hereditary position. What does that mean? So uh, their three seats are passed down to direct descendants that go all the way back to the three controlling mothers that were directing the Bene Gesserit prior to the oh, Valerian they can, Jihad. They can look back into their own... Uh, bloodlines. Correct. Okay. So yeah. So little, it's almost like having the progenitor um, Reverend Mothers in a sense mm-hmm. at your disposal. That's really cool. You have this kind of uh, this continuity from the beginning of our established That's time. That's probably the closest to immortality we're going to get. That's as close as you need to get. All though right. I'm sure you're convinced there's, there's one out there. There's a rogue mother out there. So these of these three positions, uh, Gaius Helmahayam is one of those. She is a matter executrix. Oh. Um, putting her in the hereditary line. Every time back. we talk about her, she just keeps bumping up on that <laughs> ladder <laughs> of uh, success. You're going to start thinking I'm making up titles for her. <laughs> uh, interestingly, though, that puts Jessica as one of her oh. descendants. Oh, and wow. And she did, but line. she doesn't know that. She doesn't. She has no idea. Oh, wow. Uh so then there is also uh, the Judiciary Council. Uh, they call them the Maitres uh, Aquas. And then I don't have the legislative body with me, but they are all on Wallach 9 uh, enforcing their decisions for it and guiding the Bene Gesserit as a whole, trying to make this function. And they serve a lot of uh, unique positions in the empire. Their primary objective, too, mm-hmm. and this is from Frank Herbert, is... To achieve power, but he uh, he was a big fan of that John Acton quote, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that the plan of the Bene Gesserit to take control of humanity and take this the whole control of the empire, they were always going to be one degree away from power. And the Quisat Haderach was sort of like a buffer that they were going to have the lever on him 
but then still not take the reins themselves. And they never want to have direct control of power. And that's why with their abilities, like I said, they can be immortal. They can procreate on their own. They have access to all these infinite memories. All of these things, though, they know would be a weakness if they indulged in it and focused on it. A weakness to the Bene Gesserit as a whole? Yeah, if they were to be immortal, they mm-hmm. would be villainized by the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. They were, Or idolized by a Mike on Terra. Yeah, just that one guy. That's not enough. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, if they were to, like, you know, breed their own armies. You know, t- just the idea of the rest of humanity turning on them, then their whole existence is pointless. Right. But if they can coexist with humanity and guide humanity with their powers, then they think they can achieve something amazing. Hmm. And ultimately, it seems like their overarching goal is just to make sure that humanity is never able to destroy itself. All right. Hmm. Man. They're just so cool. They are. They're one of the most neat organizations we have out there. How much time it took Herbert to flesh them out as a society both in their uh political dealings but also their religious and like walking that line between them yeah it seems like it would be there like there is a rough draft story of dune uh in the book called road to dune that brian herbert put together from frank herbert's drafts that oh really yeah and i guess it's like a very watered down version of what we're reading it's uh, not it's not like an official book or anything it's just like these are sort of the i mean it is published notes. but yeah it's not like canon right uh, like the main character's name i think is barry uh, and everything, everything about it is just not as cool as you read through it. And, uh, but it is an interesting way to just get inside Frank's head of where he was at some point mm-hmm. piecing this together. And to me, it almost seems like the Bene Gesserit, maybe, you know, they were two different groups at one point and he's like, Oh, if I just overlap this, this is way more intriguing. And hmm. if this one group has political as well as religious inclinations, where did, uh, I mean, I don't know if you know this, where did. Uh, Frank Herbert live when he wrote this was he like near a desert or anything like oh the, yeah we never touched it so the inspiration it's actually a kind of a cliche story I think a lot of other places uh, always immediately go into we've okay. put it off uh, when this started Frank Herbert was a, a freelance journalist out in Oregon okay and he was doing research for an article on they were trying to preserve the beach dunes that were eroding away mm-hmm. and they were planting various grasses on these beach dunes in order to anchor them down so they wouldn't erode. And he just got really intrigued with that. And Frank Herbert had a specific style of research method that he did. And it was funny hearing him describe it in this interview where he's like, I like, I end up with folders with topics and then I just keep making subfolders with topics that I find after with more subfolder. And I'm just like, Oh my God, this guy just needed Wikipedia and he would have been so happy with life. That's all his research style was. And what happened was with, in researching these dunes and these grasses and just starting with those two keywords, he ended up with just boxes of stuff that was too much to write an article but he didn't know what to do with it. And so then Dune sort of sprung from it and he never actually even wrote the article. <laughs> was he supposed to? Was he like yeah, freelance? Hired? No, he's doing oh. the research for it. I think it just was something that interested That's him. That's kind of amazing though, that like going out to write an article turned into this massive like saga. And like, following. I mean, it was like a six year project for him at least. And I think that was even when he had the, uh, you know, more I'm writing this book Dune. That is when that six year block is. Is this where the cliche comes in? Cause that's like really inspirational. Yeah. Of using that as yeah. a title. Yeah. 
Uh, well, not just as a title, but the oh. fact that like, you know, he went out to write this, uh, this article and he found that like, he was like, his thoughts just kept growing. He had too many ideas. And instead of going through this, he went off of a tangent and completely committed, like you said, six years to sort of writing this and cultivating it and uh, publishing it through three separate uh, articles, I guess, is the way that the publishers did it. That's why yeah, yeah, books. when he first got it published in a magazine, it was broken it, right. up and he got them in uh, analog over the course of two years of 1963 to 1965. It was published in that a magazine. Like, I don't know, just the thought of believing in it so much and like putting it out there and then watching it blossom into this is kind of crazy. Yeah, and it did. It blew up in his like, lifetime, too. How I mean, look, what year did he write it? Uh, he wrote it in 65. 65. So we got the idea in... About 59. 59. Is at it least is, where I clock it. It uh, is currently 2020, and we are putting a third production out now. Yeah, and we're... Yeah, what are we... Six hours kind of into our co- talking about it? Yeah. Without, we've edited it out for people, but... Well, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, he no, he made an impact. I think uh, it shows the work he put into this. I just think that's really cool. The layers. A good lesson to take away. Follow the things you're interested in, man. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the good thing. There was no Wikipedia because he would he <laughs> might have just been kept going and gotten distracted on something else. Wow, that's wicked. So the other topic I got for you, Mike, mm. is. A good bit of the Chome Corporation. Oh, yeah. We we discussed that briefly. We're going to go a little bit deeper into it. Yeah. I mean, so you've been asking me about this for a couple couple sessions now. It keeps coming up. Yeah. uh, But they don't explain it. Chome is always capitalized in the book. Is it's an acronym, right? Yep. So Chome is an abbreviation that you could pronounce as a word, and it stands for the Combine Onet Ober Advancer Mercantiles. Da (laughs) Combine. Combine, own it, own it. So is the combine C and H? No, no. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, own it. It's a French word, so the uh, oh. the H is silent. Got it. okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll go through it. Let me go take it word by word. We'll give you the definition too. <laughs> uh, so combine is uh, a Latin or later French root, and that one's pretty easy. It's going to mean to unite. Okay. Combine, bring things together. Uh, own it is a Middle French, late Latin. And this is for honest or honorable. So it's H-O-N-N-E-T-E. Okay. But with obviously you're kind of the silent H. So gotcha. on it. Um, then we have Ober. And this is, of course, Old German. And it's super, very, or uh, upper, Uber. Uh, advancer is going to be another French or late Latin. And this is advancement, acceleration, or even uh, promotion uh, based on Combs purpose. And finally, we have mercantiles, and this is going to be straight from French via Latin, and it is trade or just items of trade. So combining honest, super advanced trade. Yeah, not bad. Uh, The workout, I kind of got piecing these words, and uh, you get like the honorable union for promotion of greater or higher trading. Okay. All right. Chum was created. Um, pretty much, it was about 12 AG, so after Guild. Oh, so very soon after yeah, the Spacing it, Guild was established. It was in reaction to the Spacing Guild. Okay, that makes sense. Right. And what happened was, 10 years before Guild, so before they're established, they were folding space. They were able to do their thing. But they had just developed it, and they went to the Emperor, 
who uh, his name was Saudir the first, okay. uh, which is a root coming out of Sadakar. Oh, it is connected right to that. Uh, so Emperor Saudia the first is on the throne and the spacing guild comes to him and kind of presents like, look, we have this technology. We are, can bring back instantaneous travel to the universe. Now in the years after the Jihad, we got rid of, uh, all the computers that let us travel faster than light. So we had no navigation. So interstellar travel stopped and interplanetary travel basically stopped. We had a few things that did go. Um, so like there were trade routes that existed that were more like the Spice Road, where it's just the small string of planets and they only trade luxury things because it's so difficult and it's so expensive to do. And I, I don't know if there were any people on them. I don't know how they got around the light speed limitation at that point. Hmm. But basically the Empire stopped trading overnight with the Jihad and we just sort of wallowed. And now the guild is showing up saying, we can do it all again. Your troops can move instantaneously from planet to planet. Uh, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, no. <laughs> well, that's why they went to the emperor. Like the guild knew what it was walking into. Mm -hmm. and they're like, we are going to be overwhelmed. We need to go here and make sure we keep a matter of control over all this. Because they didn't want to give up the secret of how they're folding space. Mm -hmm. They've developed a very specific technique. And that technique involved a new resource. Is it spice? It is spice. It's spice. You've been waiting. Like You've wanted the, uh, when did we get this uh, thing? Mm -hmm. So it was sometime a little before the establishment of the guild, because they were using it to do their trance, but no one else knew about it yet. Mm. So now, they, they had the untapped market of like, oh, we just found something awesome. Yeah. I wonder how long they'd been using it before it became uh, so widely known. Because they were probably keeping it a secret for a reason. They were. Uh, so a good number of years. And they actually did never really wanted to reveal it. And they didn't want to reveal all the things it can do. Right. Because so, it's, uh, it's a raw material for a lot of different applications. Mm -hmm. But what they did do is they let the emperor know, hey, we found this stuff that lets you all live longer. And that was so enticing. Yeah, that perks up some eyebrows. That they didn't ask any other questions of like, kind of what else does it do and stuff like that. <laughs> they, they were satisfied. And the emperor, he's realizing there, this is going to be a lot of problems. We're, this is a dramatic change. Mm -hmm. And power is going to shift with this organization and with uh, what the guild's bringing. So he calls together a financial synod. And this is going to convene all the great houses, the guild, and the imperial house together. Uh, synod, it's coming from a Greek word, and it is a council of a church, usually convened to decide an issue of doctrine or administration. Okay. Um, so we called together a financial synod, and it, they met on the planet Aarium 4. I will never remember that. I don't think we're ever going to go back to that. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's where Chome gets founded. Uh, this doesn't happen overnight, though. This takes about two and a half years of negotiations go down. Everyone's vying. You know, they don't want to get isolated out. They all want the bit of power for themselves. Mm -hmm. The basic outline of it that we get, uh, even in the Dune Encyclopedia, they kind of say that uh, the structure of Chome that came out of this meeting was ambiguous and kind of hidden. But we can get an outline of what they decided on. So that's all I can really present to you here. After two and a half years of deadlock negotiations, 
the emperor introduced the idea of the Chome Corporation. So it was a creation of the first emperor. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, uh, he did a lot of backroom dealing before this presentation. When he okay. finally presents the idea, it's already a sure thing. He's got everybody he needs to so that he has this majority and everyone's going to either have to agree or get iced out of the deal. So the emperor, the spacing guild and Shom are all sort of products of the same like decade or two in this giant expanse of time. Yeah, the Imperial House came immediately with the Butlerian Jihad. Um, okay. After we beat it back, but certainly after, yeah, with the establishment of the guild, everything kind of comes together. And I think, especially as we're going to see, um, the great houses were defined more by the establishment of Chome than what they were prior. Okay. Uh, the definition of a great house before Chome comes around is kind of hard to pin down. And various houses could claim it, but with the establishment of Chome, it definitely becomes you have to own at least one planet and a full administration of that planet. Mm-hmm. The uh, I said the structure wasn't clear, but within this outline, I can kind of tell you of uh, how we're structured. And it's between shareholders and distributors. Okay. And those were the two terms I kind of brought up earlier when we were talking about Shaddam and what he had, where he had directorships uh, and those directorship votes. So 1% of the gross profits of this whole organization. Uh, And there is a Forbes article. uh, Actually, I should show you afterwards, and we'll post it onto our Twitter website. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, They listed fictional corporations in various sci-fi mediums. And among them all, Chome is the largest. (laughs) And this includes, like, um, Mom Corp and Futurama. Right. And all these great, like, uh, huge That's actually companies. really clever. That's a cool idea that they did. Yeah, and then they factored out. Um, they had, I think, some number in the billions for what they trade and stuff wow. like that, uh, which is really neat. But the size and scale, I think, of Frank Herbert's universe tips it in their favor where it's yeah. so everything. A hundred thousand worlds or a million at, at, worlds. And like, that's thousands of years ago. Yeah, like, that's, oh, man. Oh, uh, We'll actually uh, get to a bit where... Um, after the establishment of Chome, uh, the civil the Imperium experienced 500 years of economic growth. Because remember, there was no trade. We went from zero to having all the infrastructure we need. So all of that is just filling back up all again. All this trade overnight. Every planet, every system is now buzzing with trade. Mm. And along with that economic growth came 500 years of concurrent conquest. And every habitable world that the guild could get to, we took over. Wow. And we populated and dispersed ourselves Over to. 500 years. And so when they when they fold space, well, what's so that? So over 10,000 years. Remember, so we're in after guild year 10,191 for Paul Atreides' story. Okay. Right now, I am talking before guild, like, or 10 years, or, yeah, before oh, so guild 10. Oh, this is prior to Chome being created, then. So, yeah, basically at zero year, Chome is established, we'll say. Okay. And there's, like, 500 years from that, where there's just really aggra- aggressive rapid expansion. And then it does continue after that point as well. Uh, the guild, their technology improves. We go even further, you know, a little bit each time. Right, because once, once we got rid of uh, computers and thinking machines, we couldn't really travel in space anymore. Right. We were kind of... It was a dead stop. Oof. And now we're just all of a sudden turning the lights back on. Wow. 
Uh, and it is interesting being that people are already dispersed since we already had this intergalactic government. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just sort of like re-picking up the pieces. Now, since the emperor called this group together, he's got this organization, the guild, that has a monopoly on space travel. Mm-hmm. They use this opportunity to stop any other government that's a non-feudal government from participating. Oh, so now there were uh, houses before that were very weak because they were defending against, you know, democracies or other forms of government around them. <laughs> now that they were the backed by this Chome company and they had access to trade and space travel, these other good uh, governments didn't, mm-hmm. they could easily wipe them out. Um, every member of Chome, once you... Uh, you had to be a great house to be a member, meaning you had to have possession of at least one planet, and you had to be part of the feudal government structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you were a member, you could never have less than one share, even if you didn't participate in market trade. And that has the effect of changing the distribution of power in the universe. So they understand that planets have finite resources. Mm-hmm. Eventually, your natural resources are going to run out. Right. From the sounds of it, houses eventually just move, and we just destroy worlds uh, if they're anticipating your natural oh, resources to run out. I didn't even think out. of that, yeah. And so- Like, what was the- uh, what was The, the Ikaz. No, the Verite. Yeah, yeah. the planet was a cause. Oh, yeah. And that 50% of their wood production, right. Yeah. So that's a, eventually- I mean, that's a renewable resource, so it's a little different. Because you can regrow it and everything. Right, but certainly time. I was curious, too, of the amount of energy they would be moving out of the planet if eventually that becomes a problem, like the matter you're specifically taking out. Mm-hmm. You would eventually have to replace some of that to some extent, wouldn't you? Just yeah. the you know the atoms that are being turned into the wood are coming out of that system. You can't just keep sending that off-world without something going in. And then having an empty chunk of space, but, pretty much. Yeah, something to ponder on a different day. Yeah, that, so, that actually does get my gears turning on some yeah. thoughts. So this 1% or this one share they have uh, guarantees them an income. So even in the worst of times, they're going to have money coming to them that these other governments aren't going to have. And so that solidified all the great houses. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, so now every great house is the only house on that planet that has access to the uh, interstellar trade. Now the houses minor are even weaker than they were before. Do they go through the great houses? Yeah, they do on their planet. Okay. And it just further solidifies the power of the great house. It eliminates the potential for revolts and overthrows and kind of brought peace to the, you know, in an unfair manner, but established more peace in the universe than there was prior. Okay. Um, Distributions of these shares, uh, they would occur every hundred years. They would get redistributed based on your trade. Uh, this is just every every planet and every system is evaluated, get shares allotted to it, and these great houses. So that's all different from the directorships that we had talked about before. Mm-hmm. Those are what the Empire had when we started. So Saudia the First had 20% stake in it. Okay. And he came up with that idea and pitched it, being like he would have to be dependent on the Imperium and the great houses. And that was the that was the way he had to do it to, in order to sell the idea. Yeah. That was, he was like, look, I'll take 20%, even though my economic power and my military power is 50% of like the known universe, right. I will just have 20% of this little bit. Uh, and then certainly he had his uh, allies at that time too, 
Uh, I think it alludes to him having like a 30% sway. Was or, it? I'm sorry. He always had a uh, 15% of the vote he could turn to his favor. That, and that's pretty solid, actually. That's significant. Yeah. So that puts him at like 35 to start with. But the question, well, do you think he started and pitched it at 20 or do you think uh, he started higher and someone talked him down? No, because he was like, I need this hat to happen. When he pitched the chome idea, it was already a set thing. Oh, like I said, he did all the backroom dealing. So maybe maybe that happened then. uh, But like when he presented the idea, it was not going to fail. And it was meant to be like, look, this is finally going to solve our two year struggle. I think I have a problem with being too shallow in my thinking in this book and not giving enough credit to some of these characters. I'm just thinking they're like, you know, run of the mill, like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Um, I just I feel like. Going forward, I need to just remind myself every individual is probably a mastermind in their own right and has their own very unique agenda that they're trying to fulfill in the utmost way. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, every character is, again, at the high point of society. mm -hmm. We don't ever deal with, like, riffraff. Uh, So if anything... We don't deal with animals. Yeah, maybe everybody... If you think someone is a little simpler, you got to remember, oh, they're probably a secret agent of, like, some organization I don't know yet or... Um, we'll see a really cool discussion later in the book where there's a dinner and everyone at that dinner has motivations. That they're oh, kind of playing that with. sounds great. So it, it's a really busy scene, but an interesting one. And uh, we get to watch a lot of it through Paul's eyes. Okay. Um, so with this establishment, Chome, like I said, changed what it meant to be a great house, changed the political structure of the universe. And we have trade and travel back on the scene and Everybody capitalizes on it and we see this boom and really brings us to the world that we're in now with the exception of uh, going into the Space and Guild's actual actions and what they do. I don't think I can tell you much more here. Well, that's perfect because I don't know if you realize what that means. Uh, What does that mean? It's time for the glossary game. Oh, the glossary game. Ah! Everybody's favorite. Now, uh, are we going to cover, we have some uh, information from we, last week. Okay, we have some insights. Uh, I did a little homework. Uh, I know Derek was <laughs> right into the books, like, I'm going to find this out. I was mistaken. Naive, uh, I think that your interpretation of naive was, in fact, correct. I think last I week. checked enough boxes. <laughs> yeah, I, I checked enough boxes. I'm doing good. It is, in fact, the name of a Fremen leader, not the oath that they take. It's just, it's a Fremen leader that takes the oath that like, I shall never be taken alive. That's yeah. Which was a cool, um, it was, it's just in the glossary itself. It's kind of worded a little weirdly. I, uh, just did a quick, like, uh, uh, Wikipedia or Dunepedia. There's a Pedia for everything nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. Um, just saw the, like the first paragraph of it. It was like, Oh damn. (laughs) So I knew that I had just conceded my win there. But uh, I will uh, I will give you that win. We should keep score, actually. We should have a little uh, counter somewhere on our Fortunately, website. we're two episodes in. I know I'm 50-50. <laughs> I, I win one, lunch. lose one each time. Well, well maybe, maybe we'll stay here on this one. I don't know. Uh, so I had uh, I had picked a couple words ahead of time. Okay. Derek, oh. in his <laughs> insight, <laughs> decided to just check over my notes, make sure he had a couple answers to everything. I wanted to make sure the spelling was correct. Yeah, you made sure the spelling was correct on <laughs> Some of my yeah. glossary game quotes. I scrolled too far and yep. I compromised the game. So, so I had to get rid of a couple and I've replaced them now. And now I have uh, them redacted in black at all times. So <laughs> Derek can't sneak peek. Excellent. Um, yeah, so I've got two one of them. One I think is actually very appropriate to some of our discussions today. Okay. The other one, we're just going to see. Uh, I just like the way that it sounded when I said it. I, I imagine that's how you're going to pick a lot of them. Honestly, it really is. 
There's a honestly, there's a lot from the Fremen uh, culture in here. I've been trying not to hit it too much because I honestly like I didn't know how much we were going to see the Fremen. They from what I understood, they were kind of, you know, null. Like there was only a couple of them in the outskirts of the desert. Yeah, there's so. there's 10, uh, I believe. There's yeah. 10, there's 10 <laughs> Fremen. Ten. There's a small community under a bridge. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we're going to learn a little bit more about them. I didn't want to get too deep into that before we actually got to that in the book. So I'm trying to avoid those in particular. I mean, I think to some extent, uh, you might just have to lean into it and. Oh, you think? Yeah. There's just so much of the words back there are <laughs> that like <laughs> the sand section alone <laughs> goes on for days. <laughs> so I, I just wouldn't worry. Sand. Uh, you know, we're going to get there in the book eventually and you might maybe forget it. And by the time we get there, well, well okay, we'll see. Cause but, part of this is, uh, I'm going to quiz you on this, but when it comes up in the book, I've got to be able to tell you what it means too. Yeah. That's where I'm going to hold you accountable. Yeah, I know. Is. That's going to be hard. The words I miss. I hope you know, I found them in the book and I, I'm waiting for them to come up and I'll let you know <laughs> if we, you don't mention them in our notes when we discuss it. <laughs> what do you got for your, your first word? So first word I have today comes from our B section. Okay. And it is Baraka. I am so glad you chose Baraka. No! Yes. No! So I told you, I have been studying a little bit into mine. Oh, and the way no. I remembered Baraka was it reminded me of Barack. <laughs> so uh, uh, within the B words, I'm even going to give you a couple extra ones. It oh, starts no. with Baka, which is uh, the weeper. Okay. And Baraka is the one I just associated with that. And I believe it is a holy man. And the reason I associate with Barack Obama was just because he's got soul. That one time he was singing Amazing Grace. <laughs> so I think it's like a uh, like a religious figure. That's how uh, you remember it? Man. Yeah. How, how am I? Oh, uh, yeah. No, Confidence you got it. It, it is lit- it, in the glossary, it states a living holy man of magical powers. Uh, and oh, this is going to be a good glossary. I, re- I realized I wouldn't have gotten it regardless because I thought about choosing Baca. And I'm like, he won't know a Fremen legend. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's too hard for him. Nah, I got to just dig in now. Yeah, see, that's why I'm telling go for it. Uh-oh. Oh, man. So, yeah, you got me. You definitely got me on that one. One point for Derek. I want a victory noise. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll add it. I'll, yeah. uh, we'll make it happen in post. Yeah. Um, this one comes from the seas. Uh, and I may be pronouncing this incorrectly, but it looks like uh, Chops. C-H-E-O-P-S. Oh, I am so glad you chose no! Yeah, Chops. Chops. Oh, Mike, that's Pyramid Chess. It, uh, it is Pyramid Chess. I now see why you said uh, the one uh, we were talking about today. Yeah, yeah, everyone kind of playing a chess game. Mm-hmm. Someone is going to die over that game in this book. Oh. You can just hold on to that one. <laughs> Chops. Pyramid chess. Drop a bomb like that uh, in the glossary and game. Who wins the glossary game on this day? <laughs> now, can you, uh, okay, you know, it's pyramid chess, but can you tell me a little bit more about how this chess game differs from our chess game besides the shape of the board? <laughs> There's an additional rule. Oh, okay, okay. I'm gonna uh, make you work for it, Derek. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. So there's an additional rule. It's pyramid chess. There's a double objective. Not only do you need to put the king in check, but you have to do something else. Ooh, do you gotta get to the top of the pyramid? Uh, yes, but there's something with a certain piece. Okay, with the you have to get the king to the top of the pyramid with a certain piece. Uh, no, you have to put the king in check as one of the objectives, but you also need to get a certain piece to the top of the pyramid. Oh, but it's not the king. You need to do both at the same time in order to win. Oh, okay. Um, do you got to put a pawn on the top of the pyramid? No. Is it the queen? It's the queen. Okay. Interesting. And so 
Yeah, he put the matriarch at the top. Mm-hmm. I wonder. So that seems like a missionary of protectiva. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Of just a little, a subtle hint that the women. Oh, are the top so that's of the, the kind of thing that they do. Like, yeah, yeah. Small that is a little a pattern. Just oh, a man. little thing, a little insinuation. Do you think uh, Cheops was cr- like in part influenced by Ben and Jezzer at them? I'm, I'm just saying. With the that's what that screams to me. I'm just like, wow. why would you put the queen on top? Well, we picked some great words for today. Yeah, then that like, was a cool are, one. Wow. Um, yes, uh, I'll say that's two points for you, Derek. I think you definitely nailed it in the end. Uh, it's a nine level chess game. So the pyramid starts at one point and then eight and then it's, it's a large board. I think honestly we could make this. We could, a little, <laughs> we could make this and pretend we play. could, you know, a little bit of foam board. We could cut this out. Like, I think we could like make a Cheops game and try it out. All right. Uh, I'm not dying over this one. <laughs> no, no, no. Dude, is that how it works? Like you die? If- no, no. It's uh, don't worry. We'll get there. We'll okay. get there. Let me, let me that was great words. Though. Yeah. There's gotta be like fan made shops boards out there. I would be surprised if there aren't. Uh, I'm going to take this victory for it. And I think it kind of wraps us up for the week. Yeah, no. Um, if you have a question for us, let us know, you know, a line that we could afford. That'd be great. Uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter at spice world pod, or you can reach us by email at spice at gmail.com. And as if that wasn't enough, you can also find us at spice where we're setting up our new website. Yeah. And we're going to post any of the extra material that we come across images and excerpts from the Dune encyclopedia for you all. Now, we'll be back next week for chapter four. Uh, what do we have to look forward to in this next chapter? Oh, there's a little bit of everything next chapter. Mike. Oh. I got Mentats. Okay. I got Mind Control. Wait, wait, what? And even some music for us. Uh, oh, we're oh you're, you're preaching to the choir. I love this. This yeah, is great. I think everything's going to be awesome. Uh, well, thank you for uh, everything today, Derek. I feel like I've learned a lot more. And thank you, oh, man, everyone. Right back at you. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening today. Until next time, the spice, spice must, must flow. flow. Too late, Megan. That one you should have spoken up for. <laughs> now we Sorry, got speaking to the mic. <laughs> we went through the whole thing. He also pronounced a couple of the other French words wrong. So. Oh, oh we're gonna get several of these wrong. Yeah, that is made you very clear. To clarify that neither of you speak French. I Just demonstrate that I don't speak French, <laughs> yeah. Megan. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in the glossary game, I pronounce every word like five different times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just wait till we get into the Persian. That's when it gets really good. <laughs>